morning. So how about this weather? So next week is December, right? Is that really true? I think, uh, just so you know, wear your sweaters and bring your jackets. If it's warm out, I'm going to set the temperature down in the 60s just to get that feel. Just kidding. I won't do that. Bobby. Sorry. All right. Uh, If you have your Bibles, if you open them or open them up to Romans chapter 5, we're going to finish off Romans chapter 5 today. Starting next week, we'll begin a a four-week series leading us to Christmas, we'll have some. Uh, we'll have our Advent. We'll have some some drama. I don't mean like we'll like be drama. There'll be people up front doing some dramatic readings and things. And so I'm excited about that. Today we finish Romans five. Now, since the middle of chapter uh, five of Romans, Paul's been comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ, uh, the first Adam and what he calls in other places the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And his ultimate purpose, as we've seen and we'll see again today, is to show Christ's vast superiority, his greatness, the greatness of Christ. Let me briefly review what we've seen so far. Uh, we, we had a break last, last week with Thanksgiving, and so uh, let me review. Paul began by focusing on how Adam's sin in the garden resulted in the death of all people. That Adam's sin was credited to all his descendants and therefore death spread to all. But then at the end of Romans chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, and that's, that's Christ. Adam was a type of Christ, which means uh, there's something about Adam that's similar to, that's like something about Christ. They're very different in most ways, but in one way they're similar. That's what uh, we saw in Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Paul shows that Adam is a type of Christ in that, just like Adam's one unrighteous act, his sin in the garden, had an impact on many. It led to condemnation and death. The many became sinners. So also Christ's one act of righteousness His death on the cross, His resurrection, had an impact on many. It led to justification and life. The many were made righteous. So Adam and Christ are similar in that both performed one act that impacted many. And those single acts will determine the fate of every person who's ever lived. Every single one of us. All humanity will either in the end, be identified with Adam or with Christ. Either you'll be in Adam, condemned for all eternity, or you'll be in Christ, redeemed for all eternity. There there are only two options, Adam or Christ. But in the minds of the typical Jew of Paul's day, even a Jewish Christian, there would have been a Something would have come up in their mind, a third possibility, a third option. Yes, there's Adam who brought condemnation, and there's Christ who brought salvation. But what about Moses? What about Moses? The Jews believed that God gave the law through Moses to to counteract our sin nature, to help overcome the condemnation created by Adam and his sin. There's a proverb in Judaism that says, the more Torah, the Torah is the five books, the first five books of the Bible, the the law, 
The more Torah, the more life. So when Paul says it's either Adam or Christ, Jews would have been thinking, but what about Moses? If the law plays no part in our righteousness, in our salvation, what was the point? Why did God choose the Jews? Why did he deliver them from Egypt and give them the law and give them a land and make them a nation? If the law doesn't matter, why didn't God just go straight from Adam to Christ? And along with that, if the law and the history of the Jews in the Old Testament plays no part in salvation, why did God take so long to send Jesus? The most conservative estimates say that Christ came 4,000 years after Adam. Why did God let humanity struggle, struggle with sin, commit so many sins in Adam for so long? Why did he, he let so many sins build up before sending the Savior, Jesus Christ? And I believe Paul answers these questions, at least in part, at the end of Romans chapter 5. What he does in these two short verses is make a, a, a four-point argument. His point is, is not only to show the purpose of the law, that's what the Jews are thinking, but what about the law? You said Adam, you said Christ, Moses, the law. His purpose is not only to show the purpose of the law, but also the purpose of sin, the purpose of grace, and even the purpose of eternal life. Showing that it's all about Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the focus of all of this. So that's where we're going. To Christ. But Paul begins with the law. If as he said, if you've been with us in Romans, and he said this in different ways, over and over again, justification, uh, salvation, being declared made righteous, is by grace through faith, through faith in Christ alone, apart from any works, apart from the works of the law, If the law has nothing to do, if our salvation has nothing to do with with keeping the law, why was the law given to Moses? Now, if you were with us in Romans chapter 3, in verse 20, Paul has already said that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law makes it clear what sin is, and it makes us aware of the sin in our heart. As we read the law, of oh yeah, that, that that is wrong, isn't it? But now Paul says it's more than that. And this is the first point in his, his argument. The law increases sin. Verse 20 begins, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That word trespass means to sin, to fall, to, to deviate from the norm, to deviate from God's will, to go astray from what God has said, to violate, in fact, a known commandment of God. To see, we talked about this earlier, to see that no trespassing sign on the fence and jump the fence anyway. And notice Paul says, the law came in to increase the trespass, singular. He's referring to the the single trespass of Adam in the garden. God gave Adam one specific command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam violated that command. He jumped the fence. He trespassed. And we've seen already in in this section of Romans how that one trespass impacted many. Verse 15, Romans 5, Many died through the one man's trespass. Verse 17, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Verse 18, One trespass led to condemnation for all 
men. Because of Adam's one trespass, condemnation and death became the fate of all humanity. It was our default position, if you will. And you might think, okay, so one trespass, that was enough, right? But in verse 20, Paul says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Now the law certainly includes the law of God written by his own finger on Mount Sinai and given to Moses. But I believe it also extends to what uh, Romans 2.15 calls the law written on our hearts. To the knowledge of, of right and wrong that, that we possess. To our, our conscious, our consciences. Is that a word? No. Okay. Moving on. And just to be clear, it was God who wrote both of these. God wrote the law of Moses on Mount Sinai, and God writes the law in our hearts. So when Paul says that the law came in to increase the trespass, that means that God gave the law, these do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, knowing that the trespass would be increased. God wanted to take that original trespass of Adam and to multiply it. Now we've already seen that because of Adam's single trespass, humanity was already condemned. We'd already inherited Adam's sin nature. But when the law came, we were confronted by by many more commands. Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't covet, etc., etc. The effects of all these commands combined with... So you got the commands, and then you have humanity, and humanity has the sin nature, and you put them together, and you get this explosion of sin. Commands from God combined with the sin nature, creates uh, multiple, many trespasses. The law turned our sin nature into specific sinful acts. Like Adam, we now commit specific trespasses against the known will of God. One writer said it like this, the law makes little Adams out of all of us. So what was once one trespass in which we all shared because of our, our union with our father Adam has now become, uh, because of the law and our sin nature, uh, literally billions and billions of trespasses. So Paul has answered the question, why the law came. It came, it was given to increase that single trespass of Adam into billions of trespasses. But the question comes, but why would God, why would a holy God, a sinless God, a perfect God, want trespasses? Why would he want violations of his law to increase? Why would God want sin to increase? And that takes us to point two of Paul's argument. That is, sin reveals grace. Romans 5.20 Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The point of increased sin is so that grace would also uh, abound all the more. That word abound means to exceed, to overflow, to be abundant. The purpose of increased sin, the multiplication of the trespasses, was not the ultimate purpose of the law. God's purpose was to give the law so that sin would increase, which in turn would lead to abounding, abundant, overflowing grace. Now, how does grace abound as sin increases? Well, remember what grace is. Grace is the 
unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. Grace is getting from God something you, you haven't earned that you don't deserve. We who, by Adam's trespass and our own increasing sin, have earned nothing but the wrath of God, we instead, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, are saved from sin and saved from the wrath of God. So as sin increases, as there's more sin, as more and more people commit more and more sins, this means that more and more grace will be given to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. As sin increases, grace abounds all the more. More sin means more grace. But it's not, it's not, just so we're clear, it's not that more sin creates more grace. God's grace is and has been and will always be infinite because God is infinite. Sin, however, gives grace this opportunity to be seen, to be revealed. Let me illustrate it this way. This church, uh, Bridges Church, has the capacity to be very generous. But it's not until there's a need that this generosity is revealed. Just yesterday, about 15 people, got a picture there uh, of some of them, volunteered their time and their efforts to help one of the members of our church who had a need. They went out and did a bunch of work, uh, cleanup work and, and help. And as they served, their abundant generosity was revealed. Now, if there were no needs, if nobody had any needs, uh, then their generosity would still exist in their heart. They'd still have generosity. They'd still be generous people, but that generosity wouldn't be seen. It wouldn't be revealed. It couldn't be implemented. It couldn't be acted upon. And the more needs there are, the more our generosity can be revealed. Needs do not create generosity. Needs reveal generosity. And so, uh, just as a side note, a couple needs. This is a good part in the sermon application here. So after church service today, we have a need. We have a need to move all these chairs out of the way and put in some tables. And so if you'd like to reveal the generosity that's already in your heart, stick around after service and help us. Uh, do that very thing. Also, there are missionary cards in the back. If you'd like to reveal your generosity that's in your heart already, sign up for those missionary cards, gifts to our missionaries. All right. So, but in the same way, sin does not create grace. It reveals it. If there were no sin, then there would be no need for grace. But the more sin, the more sin there is, the more grace is needed. Therefore, increase sin reveals the existence of abounding, infinite, glorious grace of God. And more abounding grace to the glory of God is, is a good thing. So this is the, this is the good part, the, the grace, the abounding grace, the revelation of God's abounding grace is good. It's glorious. It, it makes God look great. It, makes, it glorifies God. But let me pause here. And make sure we understand what this means and what this doesn't mean. First, it doesn't mean that God desires or condones sin in any way. Now, what Paul's just said, where sin increases, grace abounds, uh, might make it sound that way. So, recognizing that he might be misinterpreted, Paul begins Romans chapter 6 
uh, that's what comes next. So we're at the end of chapter 5. These are his next words in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? We've just said uh, increased sin creates abounding grace. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Live in it, period. Or question mark. Paul says, I know what I just said at the end of chapter 5 might seem like God would, be, would desire us, would want us to continue in our sin that His grace might abound. But that's not the case at all. We who are in Christ are dead to sin. How, how can we even consider living in it? How can we consider continuing in it? Now we'll talk more about what that means and how that looks when we return to Romans in uh, January. But for now, I want us to be clear that Paul is not saying that we should continue in sin so that grace may abound. By no means. Don't do that. But what he is saying, and we need to get this, what he is saying, what is good for us to know and to hear today is where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. That when we sin, let's personalize this, that when we sin, God's grace is abundant and abounding and overflowing. Uh, Immeasurable would be a good way to say it. God's grace is much more than sufficient to overcome your sin and mine. Uh, Maybe today you feel trapped, oppressed, even overwhelmed by your sin. Maybe maybe there are secret sins in your life that no no one is aware of, no one but but you. Maybe there's a specific sin that you've struggled with as, as far back as you can remember. And maybe, maybe these sins are having a, an impact, a, a devastating impact in your life, causing pain, uh, sorrow in your relationships with your spouse or, or your kids or, or your other family members or friends, causing inner turmoil, causing anxiety and fear. Maybe your physical health is being impacted by your sin. And certainly, your sin is causing your fellowship, your relationship with God to suffer. Maybe you believe that that your sin is so terrible that God could never accept you. God could never love you. God could never forgive you. But what I'm here to say today is that God's Word proclaims here in many places that His grace is abundant and overflowing. His unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor is abundant. That you today and every day can receive this unmerited favor. Remember back Paul said, we stand in the grace of God. You can be restored to fellowship, to relationship with God. You can experience His love and His joy and His peace, His mercy, His forgiveness. Because God's amazing grace abounds in the lives of those who trust in Him. It's, it's available, it's there, it's overflowing like, like streams of living water. So don't be like Adam, our father. Remember what he did when he sinned? He ran and he hid from God. Don't let your sin be an excuse for running from God, from hiding from God, because He sees it. He knows it. He knows where you are. He knows where your heart is. And His abundant grace is always available. He just asks you to return to Him. And the more, and more than just forgive your sins, 
uh, His abounding grace can overcome them. That's what Paul says as he continues in verse 21. He's just told us the purpose of sin is so that grace will abound. And then in uh, Romans 5.21, he says, So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. Because of Adam's sin and, and, and the increased sin created by the law, sin has reigned. Uh, sin has ruled. Sin has been king. Uh, historically, sin and death have dominated. But because of Jesus Christ, because of Christ's death on the cross, there's a new king in town. It's not just that grace abounds, but that, that this abundant grace reigns through righteousness. This is so important for us to understand. That grace reigns. Grace overcomes. Grace, defeat, grace is, is, is bigger than sin. It defeats sin through righteousness. Not our righteousness, not my righteousness, not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's righteousness, counted, uh, counted, credited, imputed to those who put their trust in Him. Because we've, when we receive the righteousness of Christ, that enables a holy God to look upon us in a different way. It enables Him, if you will, to bestow His abundant grace upon us upon those who are righteous in Christ. And therefore, grace, not sin, reigns in our lives. If you're struggling with sin, if sin is reigning in your life right now, know this, God has and will provide you with abundant grace. Grace enough to not only forgive your sins, but don't stop there. Don't take the forgiveness and then move on. Oh, I get in this cycle of sin and forgiveness and sin and forgiveness and sin. That's what Paul says in chapter 6. By no means. Don't do that. Grace, there's enough grace to defeat the sin in your life. To reign over it. God's grace will defeat sin every time. So all you need to do, and this is hard for us, but we need to do this. We need to open our heart to believe and then to receive God's grace. To say, I can't do this on my own. My efforts, my accountability team, good thing. My own uh, perseverance, my own self-discipline can't do it. You, I have to turn myself over to you, Lord, and your grace. Trust in God. You have to trust in Him for the first time or for the hundredth time. You must believe that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of His sacrifice for you, that by God's grace, through faith, you can be forgiven from and victorious over your sin. Your life can be a different life, a new life. You're a new creature in Christ. And it can be characterized not by sin, but by God's grace working in and through you to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. So if you're struggling with sin, turn to God. Trust in Him. Receive His grace. And I'd also remind us of this. That one of the ways, I think one of the primary ways that God chooses to minister grace to His people is through one another. So if, if you're in need of God's grace, if you're in need of help to overcome the sin or, or, or really any, any area of your life, I'd encourage you to look to the body of Christ. Come to me. 
to one of the elders, to your small group leader or others in the body of Christ who you know and and trust as those who are mature in Christ and ask for help, ask for prayer, ask for counsel. Together, we can be used in one another's lives to minister God's grace, God's abounding, abundant grace, so that grace might reign in our lives. So the purpose for the law was that sin might increase, but that was not the end. The purpose for increasing sin was abounding, overflowing, triumphant, reigning grace of God, and that's awesome, but there's still more. Grace is not the end. Paul says that. Paul says that, uh, this is the third point of his argument, grace leads to eternal life. Romans 5.21 So that, so that, okay, because of what we've just said, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Where sin reigns, uh, there is death. Right? We've seen that over and over again. Adam provided that for us. But where abounding grace reigns, uh, this leads to eternal life. When grace, God's unmerited favor, is reigning, it's, it's in control, it's leading, it's, it's over your life, that means grace has defeated sin. Grace has defeated death. And when sin and death are defeated, we can receive God's free gift of eternal life. Now I want us to think for a moment, we're going to pause here for a little bit on this concept, this idea of eternal life, because I don't think we get it. Let's first think about this word eternal. In, in mathematical terms, we would say uh, infinite, infinity. Have you ever had a math class? We always have infinity, the little symbol, you know. Where grace reigns through righteousness, this leads to an infinite life. Now, let me ask you a question. If you have infinity, and I know that infinity is not a number, it's a concept, so mathematicians out there and physicists, give me a break. If you have infinity and you subtract a finite number from it, what are you left with? Infinity, right. For example, what is infinity minus 10,000? Infinity. You're so good. No matter how, many finite, how, how large of a finite number you subtract from infinity, you're still left with infinity. There's no less than when you first began. And this should remind us of the song we just sang, Amazing Grace. We sang earlier, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. In this life, every day, every day that goes by means fewer days left to live. In eternal life, every passing day or century or millennium will mean that the amount of future left for us is never less than when we first began. So that speaks to the duration, the quantity, if you will, of eternal life. But what about the quality of eternal life? As we've seen, eternity is a very, 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 very long time. And so, we might wonder, will eternal life ever, ever get boring? Ever be dull? I mean, if you were to take our earthly life and extend it forever, this wouldn't be an exciting prospect. I think, 
uh, the older we get, the clearer this becomes. As I get older, uh, many of the things in life that I enjoyed have become uh, dull. For example, I used to really like, I mean, I'm going to play off Chad's movie thing. I used to really like to go to the movies. But it seems now every time I do, I'm less and less impressed. It's like, been there, done that. And and, and it's not that it's a a movie I've seen already. It's a new movie, but it seems like they're just doing the same old thing over and over, just uh, splashier graphics or something. As Solomon said, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And so none of this life under the sun would be worth extending forever. The most pleasurable things on earth would be almost torture after 10,000 repetitions. And that's a clue to why eternal life is vastly different and vastly better from what we experience here. Because eternal life is not an endless pursuit of our own agenda. That's what we seem to be engaged in here on earth. But in eternity, the focus will not be on you, and it will not be on me. It won't be on any other person. I mean, we're, we, we often talk about heaven, and I can't wait to get to heaven to see grandpa or grandma or this person or that person. And, you know, you may get to see him, but you will not care like you think you will. The focus of eternity, of heaven, is not you or me or anyone The focus, the center of eternity will be God. Here's a glimpse of what the Apostle John saw and heard in eternity. Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. And I heard every creature. This is, there's no bigger thing than every. This is everybody. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is what we have to look forward to. This is the quality of eternal life, where the focus will forever be on God. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I want the focus to be on me, right? That does, that, it's exciting, when it's, but it's not. Listen, it's a good thing. The focus will be on God. This is the reason that eternal life must be eternal. And why it, it'll never be boring or dull, because any amount of time short of eternity would be inadequate for a finite creature like you and I to experience the glory of God. It'll take forever for us to even begin to see all there is to admire and enjoy and to glorify about God because uh, the glory of God is all of who He is. And God is infinite, so glory, His glory is infinite. Paul in several places stresses this with the phrase, uh, the riches of His glory. One example in Romans chapter 9, 23. He says, God's purpose is this, to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. God's purpose is for those who've received His grace and mercy to know the riches of His glory. And God's glory, uh, like His grace, is abundant. It's overflowing. It's abounding. It cannot run out because it's infinite. Therefore, it will take us all eternity to to see and experience and to admire and to enjoy it. John Piper says it this way, A finite creature cannot take in the infinite glory of God all at once. 
any more than a thimble can take in the Pacific Ocean all at once. And even if you enlarge the thimble to the size of the Pacific Ocean, you would need endless days to dip out the glory of God from His ocean of glory, an ocean which has no bottom and no shores. So eternal life will not be dull. It will not be boring. It will not be the same old, same old again and again. Because it will be in the presence of a gloriously infinite God. Let let that truth invade your mind and your hearts every day. But but even especially at times of difficulty, we talked about this last week, getting this new perspective about eternity and being thankful in that. Remember that this life, with all its pain and all its sorrow, is extremely temporal. A number of years ago, I, I, I don't even remember what I was preaching on. Uh, it was before I was a pastor. I was just doing a sermon, and I did this thing with a, a line. I strung a fish line from the back of the church to the front of the church. Anybody remember that? My dad, because he was there stringing the line for me. All right. Great. And, and then I took a piece of gum, and I stuck it on the line. You know, that's our life, is that piece of gum. And that fishing line doesn't just stop at the back of the church. It goes on infinite, infinitively. To infinity and beyond? Okay, you knew I'd get that in there. Let that truth invade your mind. Remember that this life, all its pains and sorrow, is is temporary. Remember, you're only passing through. You're only a, a speck on that line. That as a child of God, you are on your way to an eternal life filled with ever new wonders and experiences and pleasures in Christ forevermore. Amen. Now, there's one final point that Paul wants to be clear on. I mean, this seems like, amen, we're done. Let's go to eternity. But that's not the end. That's not what it's all about. It's the most important point left. This is how he ends this section of Romans. He's been comparing and contrasting Adam with Christ. But at this point, Adam is nowhere to be found. Hallelujah. Christ is the focus. Because point four is eternal life is through Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.21, one more time. Well, maybe not. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't just get eternal life because we were born. We get it through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we must trust in and we must hope for. That by God's grace, by God's unmerited favor, that he, uh, he chose to send His Son, Jesus Christ, into our world. By God's grace, Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross and He died for our sins. He became that sacrificial substitute for our sins. He died in our place that those who trusted Him by faith, put their faith in Him, might receive the abounding grace of God. That grace might reign through righteousness Not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of God's grace, the righteousness of Christ is credited to those who trust in Him. And because by the grace of God, we've received the righteousness of Christ, we're given this free gift of eternal life. And that life comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, I want us to take one more glimpse into eternal life. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, the Apostle John writes, this is what we'll be doing. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count from every 
nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and, and, and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I'm not going to tell you what all of that stuff means, but it's clear. In eternity we'll be standing before the Lamb will be clothed in white robes, will be pure and holy because of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we'll be worshiping God and the Lamb. We'll honor and glorify and thank God for His Son, Jesus Christ, forever and ever. Eternity will be about Jesus. Paul's saying that Jesus Christ is the point of all of this. He's the point of everything, that God's glory is magnified, is clearly seen, is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. That's why God waited. And in the fullness of time, He sent Christ. That's why He let our sins build up. That's why there was an incarnation, a Christmas, and a death, and a resurrection, an Easter, to reveal in the greatest possible way the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ. We need to get this. Uh, we need to understand history is His story. We've, we've said that before. That this world, that your life, that my life, is not about us. That it's all about God. It's all about Christ. Listen to what Paul says to the Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He created it all, and it's all for Him, for His purposes, for His glory. All of creation, all of human history is for the glory of God. The reason there's that 4,000-year gap between Adam and Christ is because that... what caused the greatest glory. I don't understand exactly how, but that gave Christ the greatest glory. And His glory is magnified as sin increases. Because where sin increases, grace abounds. Grace reigns. And thank God that grace leads to our eternal life. That it's all about Christ, but by His grace, we get uh, included in. We get to be under His, His, His wings. We get to be part of it. We get to share in His glory and His inheritance. We'll experience the riches of His glory throughout all eternity. And so the question must come for us today. How are we to respond to this? I mean, seriously. It's, it's, it's all so infinite and all so awesome. And so clearly not about us. We are not the focus. But we're included. And so how do we respond to the fact that, the, that, that eternal life is not about you and it's not about me, but it's all about Jesus? Eternal life is meant to bring glory and honor to the, to, the, to the God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. I think our response, the right response, is found in the final four words of Romans chapter 5. Let me, let me read verse 21 one last time. 
This time it is the last time. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our response is to recognize and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ now, today, and every day throughout eternity. To glorify and worship and honor and adore Him. To spend time in His presence, in His Word, and in prayer that we might grow in our ability to trust and obey Him in all the areas of our lives. To live not for ourselves. Because think about it. If you live for yourself in this little one spot and then, and then you get to eternity, it's not going to be about you. You're going to be disappointed. Start living for Christ now. And when you get to eternity, it will be, oh, wow. It will just ex- ex- open that all up. How else can we respond to the one who created all things, including us? How else can we respond to the one who died in our place? How else can we respond to the one who gives us his righteousness and abounding grace for the forgiveness of our sins and that grace that will reign and defeat the sin in our lives? How else Are we to respond to the one who gives us abundant grace that leads to a glory-filled eternal life? How else are we to respond but to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And maybe there are some of you here today who've never submitted to Christ. You know, I'm I'm just uh, not ready for that. I still want to be in charge. Because when we submit to the Lordship of Christ, we're making Him the Lord, the leader of our life. Just not ready for that. Maybe you've said, uh, you've always lived and and believed that life, this life here, is, is about you. Or maybe there are some who at one time gave their life to Christ, or you received Him as your Savior, and and maybe even began to submit to Him as the Lord as it was convenient. Nothing came in to to knock you off. There wasn't any big challenges, but when those challenges came, maybe you took the reins back yourself. And now, uh, you, not grace, not Christ, you're reigning over your own life. And so today, as I close, I just want to give you an opportunity as we've thought about the, the, the grace that is available to you, as we've thought about the implications of this eternal life and what it's all about, I want to give you an opportunity to today submit or, or resubmit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to personally invite Jesus Christ to be, yes, the Savior, but maybe, maybe you've done that. I, wanna, I want you to take it the, the, the next step, the only step, because those do to go together. You can't separate them. Invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, to take charge, to lead, to fill you with His abounding grace, to defeat the sin in your life, to, give you, uh, to begin to give you this taste for eternity. God will be the focus of all eternity, and you can taste that eternity today. By making Him the focus, the Lord, uh, the leader of your life, here and now. So right now, I'm going to give you a minute or so of, of silent prayer. A time to invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. And, and all that means. And maybe you don't know all that means. And, and we can help you with that. And then after a short time of silence, I'll close this in prayer. So take a moment, bow.
can bow figuratively or literally if you'd like before the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.